0: Is it on? Okay. So I thought what we'll do for the wrap-up, uh, anybody who is sitting on this <coughs> in this round area, uh, you were all participants in the meeting, in the round table. So if you have any ideas, thoughts, that you feel you didn't get a chance to express properly or any conclusions you draw or any questions you have, this is the time to discuss that. And then... Uh, after a brief period of that, we'll see if there are any questions from the remaining audience, and then that's it. So, Siri.
1: Yeah, I have a question for the, um, uh, the psychosis Binsvanga people, and actually anyone else who wants to contribute, and, and there, there are two points. Um, one is relating uh, the bipolarity, of Val Book's thinking, or the continuum from one pole to another, to um, the psychotic disorder and manic depression, and the other thing that's very interesting, um, and I, I know someone who may answer this, is the question of cosmology and psychosis. When I was uh, teaching writing as a volunteer at the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic for almost four years, I had a lot of psychotic patients in my classes, and they were highly cosmological thinkers. And I mean, they would bring together all kinds of different cosmologies into one and write about it. It was very interesting, so I wanted to know from scientists and and psychoanalysts alike, what the connection between cosmology, psychosis, and valbok. That's
0: it.
2: That's it? Nothing more than that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) uh, Francois, that's your- You are the the, the psychiatrist. Yes, for the first uh, question, I think, I discussed, we discussed <clears throat> it this morning together. It is the relation to the meaning, to the excess of the meaning. And uh, we can discuss the psychosis like, an, like said Lacan, an, inconscient a ciel ouvert, an open sky unconscious with the direct access to the things. Uh, in other schools, we can speak about a symbolic equ- 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 equation. It is the fact that for us, for neurotic it's very difficult to interpret the world. but for a psychotic, he has a direct access to the meaning but this is for psychotic in general, for bipolar. Is also the question of humor, humour the depression and the uh, boy. It's, for me, for Warburg, it's difficult to do really the difference because if the time of Warburg to say it is a psy- maniaco-depressive psychosis. It was a psychotic structure, and if we see the the different description of uh, Warburg uh, state during. Uh, Uh, in the clinic of Binswanger he was really uh, in a psychotic access with delirium, with uh, uh, psychotic anxiety, with um, uh, a new world uh, with persecution, with projection, with uh, dissociation and uh, the question remains the same that we discussed this morning. Why invite this kind of uh, state he has an access to something which is inaccessible in, a, uh, in another state for, for cosmology I think it is important for example it was uh, bispo who from from Brazil from Rio who created a cosmological uh, code with all the world inside the the, the code and well,
1: this, uh, it's true. I think less in uh, as we, that less in the Bellevue Clinic, but more actually in the theories before where he's actually articulating a bipolar theory of um, you know, emotion, essentially, mm-hmm. and how but, it appears um, in the yes. yeah.
4: uh, image. Uh, I want to say something about the bipolar. I, I have written a small article called The Eternal CISO. Uh, where there's always movement. He never occupies either one pole or the other. And And in fact, uh, he has a little figure striding and standing up on the scissor in the middle. That's a very difficult position to keep for several decades, right? Uh, it's much safer to either sit on one side or the other. And you have to keep your balance dynamically for so long. So, uh, and that has to do also with his later critics that want to position him either on the one side or the other side of the Enlightenment or the irrational Kant or... <coughs> it's never either or. Uh, it's a position in between. Uh, and next to polarity, there's the other term, Ausgleich that Martin Varenger has written, which in English is called, uh, not exactly balance, comp- balance. But it's not a, a static balance. Mm-hmm. The balance is always dynamic. You're always sort of oscillating between the two. And compensation, as a kind of economic term. Mm-hmm. That, I, don't it's so. like,
5: well, I don't like
4: Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always uh, dynamic, and there's never exact uh, safe positioning in the polarity. In fact, he energizes the polarity by making it unstable.
3: Yeah. Well, I think the question mm-hmm. is how, uh, perhaps you, you will give the answer, because uh, for me, it, not, it is not the good way to do a discussion about psychosis of Warburg. It's more important to understand how this kind of mental status opened to something new, like he yeah. was creating. In fact, we are now in New York, uh, 100 years after, discussing about Warburg, each one perhaps, each of, uh, we have each one have his own Warburg. It's my impression after this this discussion. We have different Warburg views and we are taking lesson from Warburg in different point of view. But uh, uh, for me, the, the question of bipolarity is interesting for the notion of pathos formal, perhaps. What, what can we learn from a, a, a pathos?
6: Uh, I, I know nothing of psychosis, of course. Uh, I just wanted to recall the fact that uh, when Warburg uh, describes himself in terms uh, of uh, sort of uh, autobiographical image uh, as a, a psycho-historian, Trying to uh, explore and understand the visual history of the West has taken between two extremes: uh, mania and melancholy, uh, the ecstatic nymph and the melancholic god uh, of the river god. Um, there, of course, you have a polarity of figures, the, and this polarizerum as, uh, as it says. He thought uh, at a certain time it was uh, his own invention, his own uh, creative invention uh, as a historiographical category. But there is a very interesting entry uh, in his diary, in his journal, as early as 1907, where he says, uh, "I'm reading Goethe's uh, Metamorphoses of Plants." And I find there the notion of polarity, polarität, polarization. What I thought was my own (laughs) idea, but all is there. All is there in Goethe. And I think I have tried also personally to to explore this background, which is morphological. And morphological means that you never understand one phenomenon if you do not see (laughs) both forces in it. So that pathos formal exactly is is the fact that you have a formal, which is not a form, which is both a form and the repetition or the possibility of repetition of this form, the formula, Mm -hmm. which immediately expresses a pathos, but can be electrotechnically inverted. polarized in this sense, uh, even Mm -hmm. from uh, these electrotechnical metaphorics we were talking about it before. So it can become, uh, as we said many times during these round tables, uh, the menad and the magdalene, the, the healing serpent and the poisonous serpent and so on. But Goethe is there. Just,
7: just to follow up, I I would um, like to invite you to, since you, you wrote extensively on this topic, uh, you were mentioning uh, uh, Warburg's reading of uh, Goethe, the Goethe searching for the Urpflanze. So could you tell us more about uh, this sort of uh, trail uh, recurrent in, in the history of images of ecology, trying to link uh, symbolic forms with uh, uh, their biological origin and perhaps bringing in uh, pit rivers and the like?
6: I'll I'll try quickly, (laughs) which is not easy. (laughs) Um, Of course, the question of the Ur, of the origin of the Ur built, uh, that has already come out during discussions, um, is rooted in Goethe's morphological thought. And Goethe, as we know, uh, understood this idea of um, natural research. Uh, not as a dilettantistic uh, approach to study of nature, but on the contrary, as the other side of, 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 of the moon, meaning that uh, uh, a novel, a love novel, as the elective affinities, can be understood as well as a chemical treatise, a theory of attractions and repulsions of nature, of uh, sympathies and antipathies. Of magnetism, as well, so it, 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 it must be, he must be read as a holistic uh, author in in this sense or, uh, we find already in Goethe i think uh, a tension, which is to be found uh, afterwards in Warburg as well, between um, historical understanding of the Ur and uh, properly morphological. Uh, When Goethe uh, was looking for the uarp flanze, for a certain time he was convinced that the uarp flanze was the first plant ever, that that had appeared at at the beginning of the world. And, And he was convinced that he had found it in the ginkgo biloba. The ginkgo biloba was the most ancient plant on earth. From the Jingu Biloba, every other plant um, had derived, according to this first historical approach to this notion of the ur. But then going to Italy, there, there's, there's a letter to Herder from Palermo Palermo Botanical Gardens. And there he understands, and, and of course, his reading of Kant is very important as well, because he speaks of a transcendentalis blood. Uh, transcendental leave, leaf, uh, meaning that Ur uh, is not something that you have to look for on the timeline, the first point on the line, of the chronological line. From that point, everything else in, in the vegetable uh, phenomena descends and arrives. Ur uh, is rather the theme never given sort of, uh, Wittgenstein perhaps would say, Wittgenstein, who was a morphologist as well, Goethean, morphologist as well, would talk perhaps of family resemblance. So you recognize the theme among all the vegetable phenomena (coughs) During um, processes of uh, uh, condensation, of expansion, uh, um, how do you say, allungamento? Lengthening. Lengthening, or or, or, uh, compressing. Any vegetable uh, phenomenon is the leaf, so it, it can become the roots, uh, it can become the branches, it can become the trunk, and and the same uh, can be said for the osteological system. So when he speaks of the urvirbel, the ur the original vertebra, and and he sees that it, it can become the the bones of the leg uh, of the skull in a metamorphosis, you recognize the vertebra, but you never actually see it in itself, uh, only varied. So uh, if, you want, if you want to use a, a musical metaphor, we could say we don't have the theme, but we just have variations. Variations of a theme that is never given in itself, but only in its variations. And, and if you look at the panels of the *Nemozune Atlas, where is the nympha? You have variations of a theme, of a pathos form, that is there in any, every nympha that you look at, but never exhausted in any single nympha. So you can look at the golf player, at the, at the servant of the girlandaio, of the um, archaic manod, and, and And this, I think, is a morphological approach. Theme never given, but in its variations. Um, This is, um, this tension between a historical approach to the UR and a morphological is to be found in Barbougal as well. For example, when he studies Manet, and he says Manet is not a a new author. The Déjeuner sur l'herbe is not uh, la nouveauté absolue. Uh, It's something that has roots in uh, Giorgione, in Marcantonio Raimondi, in a drawing by Raffaello, unfortunately lost, in a a relief uh, in the the wall of Villa Medici in Rome. And so it needs to reconstruct the historical chain, going back to the model. So he has a traditional idea of the Ur as the origin. But uh, as we know, many uh, links in this chain are missing. And moreover, if you go back to an Hellenistic model, you cannot say you have found the origin because you can ask for a, a Greek origin and for an archaic Greek origin and oriental origin and so on. So the quest for the origin transforms itself rather in a morphology. So it's not important to put all these figures in a timeline chronologically oriented, but rather to think them, I would say, in a radial scheme. At the center of the scheme you have the pathos form. And around the scheme, you have the figures that gather around the mother, as Goethe said, of the phenomena, of the or phenomenon, <clears throat> like a mother that gathers around herself the, the children. And you have the, the, this, this network of uh, phenomena. And I think that each panel of the Mnemosyne Atlas is organized like that, like sort of a gathering of children around a a mother theme that is never given. Uh, Warburg is uh, one author of a very complex uh, uh, landscape, morphological landscape in uh, late 19th, early 20th century that has never been reconstructed yet yet in uh, its uh, density, in its complexity. And I would call it this morphological paradigm in the humanities it, <coughs> in anthropology in art history we found we, we find it in uh, Jolle's uh, linguistics the einfache formen is a morphological approach prop morphology of the folktale. tale uh, some structuralism gestalt psychology so really many 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 fields and i think linguistics, linguistics Ostrov uh, uh, formalism, Russian formalism, Uxküll, this idea of, of, of course, uh, a morphology of lifestyles.
5: Although, uh, if we think about Darwin and the expression of morphological qualities of the expression of emotions in animals and humans, as everyone has, as many people have noted, an important book for an important book for Um there is a chronological element there that perhaps you're downplaying somewhat. <clears throat> I mean, the, I agree with you that Walbrook is not, like Walter Benjamin, is not interested in Orsprung as a chronological beginning point. But yet, if we look at the panels, they, are, they do move from antiquity to the present day. So he is offering us an historical
6: atlas, one that proceeds moves forward. I agree. In in fact, I was talking of a tension because I don't think that Barburg uh, is emancipated completely from the traditional historical approach. On the contrary, he feels the tension between this and, and he feels attracted by the traditional historical task to reconstruct the timeline, the chronology of the phenomena. And this is there together with the other side uh, when Spiro says it's never one or the other, but you have to think in between. And moreover, if you read the origin of the species by Darwin, there is a paragraph on morphology. He knew very well Goethe and he says, morphology is the mother of our problems. <laughs> so uh, even I- in this depth that uh, Warburg has toward Darwin, you can see uh, in transparency, uh, Goethe, as well again.
5: And, and I mean, to complicate or to swing the pendulum just a bit further, doesn't Freud discuss school, the school, Raphael's school of Athens, in in, in the Traumdeutung as a kind of synch, synchrony of 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 symptoms of, of of appearances? I seem to recall. Yes.
0: The Freudians don't remember it. Not responsible. (laughs) I'm not responsible.
3: I, too, I don't remember. Perhaps uh, the impression... I'm pretty sure he does. (laughs) But... Downstairs. But perhaps uh, an important question uh, which was in the origin of our meeting here and uh, of uh, our discussion was the question of uh, plasticity, dynamic memory, and unconscious. And the purpose was to revisit uh, the new vision of unconscious and uh, memory with the information of uh, contemporary neurosciences. And I think it will be interesting to discuss a little about that because we can say there is a dynamic memory today in the vision of neurosciences <clears throat> very dynamic memory <clears throat> and the question from neurosciences is the uh, diachronic I- identity where come from the diachronic identity uh, we, if we are always changing from where uh, the permanence of yourself the permanence of your reference, of your history, will come from. And perhaps we have a paradox, as we discussed before, that in biology, we have permanent change. And in cultural uh, point of view, you have something which is more in the dialectic of memory as a conservation, as continuity. And I think the discussion about continuity and discontinuity in the dynamic process of memory, is interesting to, to, to have it change the point of view. For a classical psychoanalyst, we are thinking about psychoanalysis, about uh, human sciences as the the, the field of the, the possibility to change, and biology as determinism, programmation, uh, fixed structures. And, with the new paradigm of plasticity you have an inversion of the of the representation perhaps more uh, more mobile in biological structure and more immobile in in cultural structures
8: well, it is a pity that the memory people are not here anymore <laughs> Well, yes, it's Pierre,
0: and I know psychoanalytic memory, he knows, (laughs) we can manage.
8: But, yeah, I was wondering, in fact, myself, about what we were discussing, they were discussing, you were discussing this morning, because it is indeed one of the, the most interesting things, that at least I think for neuroscience came out from this Warburg meeting, um, the thing is that the, the memory was discussed this morning is in fact somehow very fixed and very flexible. I mean you speak of a synaptic trace which is something that really deeply changes your brain. Everything you, you hear, you listen, you do can change through the plasticity of your brain but still is a dynamic thing. So ongoing even during this, these days. Uh, we are carrying on changing. But we perceive ourselves and our identity as a stable, at least if we don't run into the pathology, as stable in space and time. So I was wondering if what you were saying about the variation and the theme could be somehow applied in trying to understand memory but not as a synaptic trace, because it's like explaining vision with the functioning of cells in V1, V2, or colors in V4. There is something more, there is, you know, our story is, a, is also a nar- narrative story of ourselves. it's something, and it's not only about learning. What Christina was saying, memory is something you learn. I'm not sure is something you learn, is, something you experience, something you, you go through, something that changed. Yesterday, Vittorio was saying oh, we, are, we are made of bricks, but you can change the disposition of these bricks. And somehow the bricks can be the variation around the theme. <clears throat> and so the dynamic aspect of memory could the, be the, in all the, these the, variations. The, the,
6: yeah, the, the creative and, and plastic aspect uh, that both uh, reproduces and produces. I, I, I was thinking, uh, listening to this idea of plasticity, of course, of the very famous passages in, in, in Proust uh, or, or in, even in, in certain phenomenology, but even in all those authors that have insisted on the retroactive, uh, ret- retrograde uh, movement of, of truth. Uh, Bergson has a beautiful conference on that. The Aprekud in Nachträglichkeit Borges when he says that Kafka creates his precursors. <laughs> or uh, Thomas Eliot that says in Tradition and Individual Talent that uh, when uh, a new author appears in the scene, in the literary landscape, the old history has to be rewritten. So um, briefly, the the, the present shapes the past, the past shapes the present, and you have again this in in between, of passivity and activity, a chiasmatic relation, if you want to use the Merleau Pontian notion, and I I'm not a neuroscientist, but uh, yeah, from your uh, comments and and discourses. Uh, uh, about plasticity, I immediately connected them to this constellation of problems, uh, which is exactly, even in verbal, the idea that uh, he says uh, the laucon uh, should have been invented if it was not there, meaning that uh, Renaissance uh, is, is a construction, Is was there, a certain amount of phenomena, but there's a retrograde uh, create creative uh, 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 installation of this notion of renaissance uh, as an après coup?
0: I I think
9: there is a, go ahead. No, but I mean, just to um, stress again, the notion that one dimension of plasticity is that it allows experience to leave traces by modifying synapses that are facilitated and then when they are reactivated that somehow reproduce the experience, more or less. Uh, and at the same time, uh, particularly this idea that whenever, and it's not an idea, it's actually an experimental uh, uh, observation that when traces are reactivated, as Christina mentioned, they are becoming labile, more fragile, or more susceptible to associate with uh, with others with a, a new concept. So. <clears throat> Nothing is lost really, but uh, it's updated uh, permanently. So, this in a way, uh, try to grasp this notion of permanence and at the same time of uh, continuous change, which is something that is paradoxical because you you would uh, say, you know, memory is something that is there, uh, you know, once and forever. And, And this is really the evolving notion that it's true, but at the same time, it's susceptible to change. And um, all the mechanisms are not known, actually. But but certainly, this possibility of reassociation of traces. So uh, a given trace is now put into uh, associated with others in a new context um, pro- produces this, uh, this, this uh, change, in a way.
3: Yes, it is important because we have to revisit the relation between nature and culture. If we can say that it is a permanent change, we can say also that we are, as we said in our books, we are biologically determined not to be completely biologically determined. We are biologically determined to be free. And finally, we can say in this, uh, this, posi- this discussion that we are biologically determine, determine, to receive the incidence of the culture. Oh. And that the, the idea, the space for the culture is inside also the biology of the, the. And after it is the question, why is it like that? Why is it necessary? Yeah? The, 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 the incidence of the culture, we are unachieved at birth. We need the other, this is a psychiatric, psychoanalytic point of view, we need the action of the other, and we can develop these ideas discussing about the necessity of the culture which is inside the biological organization.
0: I I found the the discussions very uh, interesting and thought-provoking. In particular, I have been thinking about the issue of memory. So for a psychoanalyst, there is a a relevance and history to the concept of memory because uh, Breuer, uh, Freud with his experience with Charcot and then on his own, uh, discovered that certain, Uh, manifestations in a patient, certain symptoms, could be traced back to a specific memory. And that the bringing into awareness of that specific memory would alter the symptoms. In that way of looking at it, memory is a very discrete entity, so what we call memory trace, so that there are all these traces. They are discrete entities. But when you start thinking uh, from the perspective of, uh, let's say, plasticity, when uh, you and Joe this morning say, well, the brain changes after this meeting, or during this meeting, the brain changes. what is memory in that? There isn't a discrete, so uh, the whole question of, uh, and then the other thing is Christina says, well there is learning, well there's learning, there's experience, and there is what Freud didn't really uh, directly uh, touch upon, though it's inherent in the concept of free associations, is that, It's not like you have a discrete experience and that experience stays isolated. It must be that all experiences are affecting each other forwards and backwards in a dynamic way. And so within this way of seeing, it's difficult to speak of uh, memory in the usual sense we speak of it. Uh, there may have to be a a different approach to understanding exactly what it is that is happening. That is, and even, um, and I think once you start thinking that way, the, the Freudian dynamic unconscious becomes something that needs to be revisited.
3: Yes. And perhaps the the limit between memory, dynamic memory, and dynamic unconscious, Freudian unconscious, is less clear than before. For us, we consider that uh, unconscious was, Freudian theory, is not a a memory system. But if we enter in plasticity, dynamic memory, we we have something new in the confrontation between unconscious and memory. And finally, it's easier to understand what is unconscious than what is memory. Well,
0: but you know, there, there, <laughs> you know in, in, in classical Freudian thinking, unconscious or dynamic unconscious is connected to the notion of repression, which means the memory is not becoming conscious for a reason, whereas it may be that memory is not becoming conscious, just further from being whatever needs to bring it into awareness, into consciousness, is not happening. So if you don't listen to that piece of music for 30 years, that memory, you could say, is unconscious. You could even say in a speculative Freudian way, You kept that memory out of your consciousness because it happened during your adolescence. You were sexually into this, and it kept it. But it may just be that you didn't have the method of accessing it, and when you accessed it with a repeat of the same music, it came right back.
8: But this gives a very discreet perspective on retrieval, too. So, and and your example was uh, incredibly good in showing that even, the retrieval aspect of memory is not discrete. Right. You don't have to act. Exactly. To this portion. So I think what I was just uh, in a delirium thinking of your description of the resonant, you know, this variation around the theme, it would be would give to memory a more complex structure. So I don't know exactly how it could be formalized, but
7: um, I think. The difficulty of, of, of addressing um, these issues, the relationship between memory and unconscious, uh, the notion of form, where, where the form comes from, the, the problem of the Ur, uh, or even uh, the related uh, uh, problem of uh, uh, self identity, uh, bring us back to uh, a, a key point of our ontology, of our epistemology, which is language. And there's, there's a, a passage that keeps obsessing me, which I, I uh, totally, uh, uh, by, by chance, uh, found in, in, in a wonderful book by Primo Levi, uh, The Drawn and the Saved. I don't have the English, but I can. It's, it's very short. Uh, I have the Italian one. What we commonly uh, uh, conceive of as understanding, he writes, uh, coincides with simplifying. Without uh, a a deep simplification, the world around us uh, would be an endless uh, undefined knot that would challenge our ability to orient and decide upon our action. We are, um, to put it simply, uh, forced to reduce the knowable to a schema. And this is the specific purpose of uh, the wonderful instrument we built in the course of evolution and which are specific of the human species. Language and conceptual thought. So I think Primo Levi here is, is dealing with a completely different uh, issue, what does it mean to survive Auschwitz, uh, uh, what does it mean to, to feel guilty of something, etc. But if you somehow uh, use this as a starting point to, to reflect upon many of the themes that we have been discussing during uh, these days, uh, I think that the notion of, of identity, can be much better tackled uh, from, from our point of view, from the neurobiological point of view, if you interpret it as a, uh, as a process and not as. So there is no such a thing in the brain as the self. Uh, the self is a process, a dynamic process, which in a way is a way not to answer in the question, OK, a process of what? So then the neurobiologist desperately needs something to grab uh, in order not to be uh, completely drawn in this uh, 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 sort of uh, indeterminacy, uh, universal indeterminacy. And this something to grab on are the bricks uh, that metaphorically speaking I was alluding to. So going back to Warburg, uh, Francois said uh, each of us has probably her or his own Warburg, Uh, one of the things that uh, really uh, struck me uh, of Warburg is his definition of the history of art as the history of uh, human pragmatic expression, which immediately in my my head uh, uh, um, suggested the possibility not to naturalize the history of art, that's not the way to put it, but at least they attempt to naturalize the process of morphogenesis. And then, the uh, verbal greeting of Goethe and the tradition that uh, um, Andrea was uh, very briefly referring to, offer a sort of uh, kind of uh, uh, very remote but not totally uh, 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 crazy uh, goal, uh, which is specifically that of looking for possible biological roots of symbolic forms. And I think that in that respect, uh, Warburg uh, uh, definitely, at at the very least, uh, uh, I don't see him as standing uh, against this project, but I think that uh, by reading Warburg, perhaps in my very own idiosyncratic way. I think barbur would, uh, would would nod <laughs> uh, uh, and would encourage uh, this sort of search um, and uh, and then I will uh, will stop uh, the notion of uh, a form that is not the, the primitive form but uh, being instantiated in a variety of ways uh, still keeps some. Constant aspect reminds me of uh, uh, the notion discussed by Agamben radicalizing paradigm uh, 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 the notion of paradigm uh, by Aristotle, so according to Warburg, uh, sorry to, to agamben uh, this is specific uh, of uh, our species the possibility to uh, achieve Something that cannot be universal, but being paradigmatic uh, becomes, uh, uh, so so to speak, by means of decoupling something from his usual uh, reference role. He makes the example of Rosa. Uh, Rose is a word referring to a biological object, but when decoupled from... uh, his role of referring to something in the physical world, when it becomes uh, one uh, element of the Latin declination, rosa, rose, uh, it doesn't refer to any specific rose, it becomes a paradigm. So I believe uh, the same logic can perhaps be applied to the notion of morphogenesis and can be perhaps fruitfully tackled uh, uh, from a biological point of view. So that's uh, the main reason why we decided to confront scribbles uh, uh, with the Chinese ideograms uh, and uh, alphabetic Roman letters. So, and if I had uh, the, the power to do it, uh, one project I would really like to, to pursue would be to look among all known possible uh, writing uh, Uh, that we know uh, uh, along uh, uh, human history, to look for specific biomechanical uh, constraints, kinematic bricks that somehow, so I mean the way we are, it's a dynamic process. I am not the same as I was uh, 20 years ago. Before becoming a father, my attention started one meter uh, uh, above the ground. Whatever was moving below one meter didn't exist for me. Now, all of a sudden, I become a father. I, I discover the world is full of children, of uh, this kind of thing. So I'm not anymore uh, the Vittorio or uh, the single um, playboy, etc., etc. Some a different person. Uh, so the idea is that this is something that can can be investigated and I think warburg in a way is uh, can be a source of inspiration
9: but i I uh, I mean what maybe I'm just reading what you say in light of what I think but the the point i I made this morning about uh, these um, hardwired um, uh, maybe neuronal circuits in a way that uh, uh respond to certain uh, archetypal or biomechanical shapes and patterns uh, I mean for me uh, can be related to to what uh, warburg has identified as persisting over time and then of course based on this they can re-emerge and be reinterpreted and being and and, and find a, an, an uh, their life on their own uh, through plasticity, through the culture, through a given moment in time. But, but there is a, a, a const, an invariant throughout uh, uh, time and cultures uh, that is based on some biological yeah, property. Well, so I think we, we share the same, the same point.
1: But it might be interesting to make a distinction between images and text. Right between images and language, and it's interesting that Velburg seemed to have—he um, really had a hard time with with writing. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience of reading Valbuk is God was not only in the details, but he got lost in the details, and you can feel a certain compulsive inability to extract.
6: Let alone the handwriting.
1: You know, exactly, and then (laughs) stopping the project. So we have to think about that. There was something, and when he came to Numosina, the, uh, really he didn't get the text done, right? He died before the text was finished, but the idea of these pictures speaking, and you know, Freud talks about, Mental images, not external images, but mental images as phylogenetically and ontologically older, of course, than language, which we know they are. So it would be interesting to hear people talk about this distinction, which is related to conceptual questions and uh, morphology.
5: I, I love the example of Primo Levi, because, I mean, Vaubo would ascribed to it immediately in the sense that this is how, what he thought and Vischer and and, and, the, and the Viconians that he was reading, this is what the symbol is. But then I would just want to add to that and complicate that with what Andrea, by mentioning invoking Goethe and the Goethean symbol was precisely what Walburg did not want to have because for him the symbol had to be discursive. It had to be at uh, endlessly metonymic. It couldn't have that romantic good and symbolic power because it was, it was too complicated. It was too oscillating. It was too um, unstable. I, 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 My I impression think,
6: uh, is that they, um, in fact, in between there is uh, the tradition Kreutzer-Bachoffen. Bachofen. is, a symbol is something, something dense, complex, When you narrate it and you describe it, you have the exegesis of the symbol, and then you have the myth. And then you you recount the history of the serpent as Asclepius. And so you decline and you inflect it towards the good, towards the positive pole, otherwise you can describe it and uh, recount and narrate it uh, in the myth of Laocoon. So the exegesis determines the symbol and its density towards a a direction, pardon?
5: But it also undermines it. It it, it doesn't allow it simply to be the serpent or the flag or the chalice. It it becomes iconographic as well as
3: iconological. I have a question to, to your argument, your excellent argument of uh, Victorio uh, You We are speaking about biological roots of form. And I ask me if it is biological roots or a biological necessity of the form. Because something is missing in the program of the human being we are without uh, instruction for use. We are unachieved at birth. And we need also something from the other. And perhaps we need the form. It, for me, it's different to say, the, perhaps it's the same, it is different, it is, uh, but it is important that not the biological root, if, like if it was inscribed in your uh, our program, but the biological necessity of the form. It's like the distinction, excuse me, like you discuss, like the socio between language and speech. The each act of act of speech, speech act, each speech act modify the system of the language, and we, you have this kind of dialectic with an endless, permanent change. All with the necessity of the form, but the possibility not to find the, the true uh, form, but to, to recreate permanently, endless, a uh, new form from another form. And for me, Warburg is very interesting because in Nemosign, he, he put together different kinds of form that are unified by their necessity
10: and not by the common root. Uh, if, if I could pick up on what you say about text and image, I was reminded listening this morning and now that in fact in the Glade's years, which are dedicated to his own recovery, there's two great works that have the same title, that is mimosine. The first is the Builder Atlas and the second is the library, so you have yeah. text and image. And this also reminded me of, um, of a very short text that I give to students when I introduce the library. And, you know, they expect you know, how to find your reading list, etc. And I read a very short text by Varbo, which describes the library as an off-clarum-waffe, a weapon of enlightenment. <laughs> and to me, that, that seems to be a very powerful way of inverting his phobia with God and turning the library into something very dynamic and very organized at the same time, because the library has a, quite a clear organization. It's organized chronologically, there's no alphabetical order, so it represents time, and it also is um, subdivided by space. So it's indeed a space of, of self-healing, and of creating a space where he can navigate himself.
0: Hello? Uh,
2: this isn't a, a direct response to what has been said. Um, but. When you refer to the library as a weapon, I think that it's something to bear in mind. And that is Warburg's relationship to the world around him, which was very close, very attentive, very conscious and self conscious. Um, when we speak of his identity, um, it was something very problematic for him in a socio political sense. And that includes his family, includes religious background, and he was constantly negotiating this. Uh, with himself, within the family, with others, and and who he was socio politically, um, was was on his mind, and that the creation of the of the library, right, was not just a an intellectual act, not just a a projected psychological one, but a a socio political one, and one that he negotiated with his family, through his family, and and that continual concern with you know where he fit within the society the politics of his time his identity with his class with his state but his problems with that um, his identity with judaism and his ambivalence there um, his attention as peter pointed out to what to, to anti-semitism and what he could do about that um, this remained Constantly of importance to him. And so, all I would say is that in the discussion of his, his intellectuality and his relationship to, to the intellectual traditions with which he is dealing, I think his, his socio political sense and background um, just sort of helps in some way to understand what stays with him, what he decides to pursue.
10: That, that little aphorism fits very well into what you said because it continues the library as a weapon of enlightenment against orthodox dogmaticism, then he says luther the french revolution science liberating the right to think for oneself Well, so i think that that really fits very very squarely into that discourse
11: you know as i've been listening to the way that each of us has been thinking about warburg you know i wonder if in one sense he's an ego ideal of something that uh, Uh, The psychoanalyst Rothenberg referred to a Janusian process of thinking after the Roman god Janus, where there's an active and intentional conception of two or more opposites simultaneously that is very much like primary process thinking with the equivalence of opposites, but is actually a conscious, intentional, rational process that also (laughs) obeys reality testing. And that this is something that we recognize, perhaps, in Vorberg. And so many of the comments have been attempts, rather than maybe trying to find the middle ground, reconciling opposites, whether this a kind of, there was kind of an Aristotelian and Platonic undercurrent to, to what, what yes, you were. Yes, and, and, <laughs> it's, and it's not finding the midpoint, but we're all sort of, you know um, I, I think in a way, uh, fashioning our thinking after Vorberg. And this is what I think we see as so ideal about Okay.
1: Yeah. I, I, in this context, I want to bring up the seismograph. Um, you know, Wahlberg really felt he, he was a seismograph. And if you think about it, I've, I've had this uh, a much humbler uh, metaphor about my own nerves, which is a tuning fork. You see how humble that one is compared to the seismograph. But the seismograph is, you know, picking up earthquakes. Uh, and you feel this in the sensibility, and this might be, this is obviously personal, it's subjective, and I have noticed that you know people want to walk very carefully for re- human and good reasons, respectfully, around the subjective reality of what it was like to be Abhi that we can't know, of course, but we can guess through this particular metaphor of the seismograph, that he was a person who was picking up a lot, and you feel it in, this, in the psychotic material, and you feel it before that, and you feel it after.
5: Yeah, even in 2090s, he uses the metaphor of the antenna as well.
1: Yes, there you go. The same thing. Okay.
5: Hmm? I think we could stop here
0: and be open for questions, if there are any No you want to make one last comment before we close?
6: I I, I, yeah, because, because uh, Siri introduced this, this very delicate issue, um, text, image, and of course, uh, in visual culture studies, it's a main issue, word versus image. I was wondering whether um, exactly reading uh, Barburg and looking at Barburg, meaning looking at, at the panels, we are not perhaps uh, too radically opposing these two systems and and registers. Um, Both for uh, our past and uh, the etymological uh, reason, that is, uh, the Greek verb graphene means both to depict and to write. And the same happens in ancient uh, Egyptian language, in Gothic language. Uh, Vittorio was mentioning uh, the Chinese uh, uh, ideograms, pictograms. Uh, we encounter um, text and image, icon text, as, as many people in the visual culture say, in advertising, in uh, on the web, uh, in our books, uh, even on the panels of Nemozune. So I was wondering, and I, uh, I'd like to ask you as neuroscientists, if such a, a division, between uh, a separation between um, the responses and the reactions and the processes in the brain with words and with images, is, is something useful? Or if we shouldn't rather develop uh, a method to approach in a holistic way? The whole thing.
0: Well, Short answer
6: and I mean, uh, perhaps abandoning. I, I'm not sure how the uh, actual uh, present-day neuroscientific research goes on exploring world versus image. Uh, perhaps my feeling is in a separate way there are regions processing our. Relationship to words, regions, processing our relationship to images, responses, and so on. Is there a research nowadays questioning the way we uh, respond to icon texts? Mm. Well, uh,
7: I'm not aware, but that's not, uh, it doesn't mean necessarily anything. Uh, one, one of the uh, uh, very interesting discovery that neuroscience has made recently when it comes to the relationship between uh, uh, symbolic uh, graphic signs and the brain, uh, I'm referring to the research of uh, Stanislav Dehaene, uh, of Cohen, uh, people in Paris who have discovered that uh, apparently there is a part of our visual brain which is uh, specifically and uniquely activated uh, by, um, by letters, uh, but not by numbers, for example. So it's not the pragmatic uh, component uh, which uh, specifically leads to this activation, but is uh, something uh, brand new uh, in terms of evolutionary time. It's just an eye blink, 6,000 years of uh, uh, against a history of at least uh, more than 100,000 years. So uh, what is this? Uh, I tend to uh, be uh, inclined to an exaptation perspective. So I don't think our mind is uh, uh, can be described uh, metaphorically as a, sorry, as a Swiss army knife. No. <laughs> yeah. With all due respect to this wonderful tool. Uh, but I don't think our mind can be modeled in that particular way. I don't think that every cognitive ability is, uh, is necessarily the outcome of uh, its specific adaptive value, but I stick to uh, Golden Levantine, uh, the spandrels of some Marco, famous paper where they, they um, introduced the notion of exaptation. So uh, to put it simply, uh, uh, nature is a sort of bricoleur, uh, so you have uh, something that evolved to uh, answer some specific uh, uh, pressure and you somehow transform exactly. dynamically perhaps you, you use the very same bricks but the same bricks dynamically connected in a in a different way can accomplish uh, different things uh, so uh, What is remarkable is that a trace, a footprint, for an animal at best uh, can uh, speak of some other animal that was passing by. In our case, the handprint is a sort of uh, vindication of our identity, so I am, and it's amazing how many uh, handprints are uh, discovered, uh, I have a friend who's an archaeologist, Maurizio Forte. He studies the Neolithic period, Cataluque, uh, in, in uh, uh, Anatolia. And he was telling me that uh, all of these houses in a very specific, detailed, very much ritual-like form, uh, there are thousands of, of these um, handprints on, on specific walls. Uh, I don't remember if they... Uh, with respect to, to the cardinal points, there is also a rule in that respect, which is a way of asserting our identity or whatever. I mean, you we, we probably will never know. So uh, this is a real challenge for, for a biologist because uh, we are dealing with um, an aspect of human nature that um, to many uh, is beyond any reach of the empirical sciences. I. I tend to be rather optimistic or uh, um, uh, delusional,
0: (laughs) (laughs) and think we have a chance. Okay, Um, we have one comment, and then. Oh yeah, I wanted to
12: ask a question, just kind of follow up on that. Um, You know, Cassira, following Warburg, looked at man as the animal symbolicum. So, and his example was, "Give me a line." And it's all in the context. It's our ability to bring to that line, whether it's a mathematical graphical formulation, or an aesthetic calligraphic expression, or whether it's a numerical symbol, you know. And so, um, what I find to be interesting, and I wanted to know what uh, the the neurophysiological opinion might be on this, that you know, there's work done by Stephen Kosslyn and others that says that the brain actually. Projects in the visual cortis, in the visual cortices, iconic resemblances to the affordances that we see, that we pay attention to, that the curves that we see are actually modeled two dimensionally on surfaces in the cortex, uh, visual cortex. At some point, there's got to be like an interpreter that's grading and evaluating, like maybe the interpreter Gonzaga Gazzaniga talks about. Is there? Any literature that talks about this?
7: Well, the, the word interpreter is a, is a scary one uh, because uh, you don't want to fall into the homunculus trap. So um, the interpreter is, at best, an emergent property yeah. of, the, uh, of the whole system. I, I would put it uh, uh, in that specific way. Uh, vision has been, in my opinion, so far too much studied and conceived of uh, within the limit of vision itself. As um, we were discussing yesterday, uh, unimodality is not the rule, it's the exception in the brain. So synesthesia, apparently, is rules. Okay, And I have the suspect that uh, a very viable rule uh, uh, to glue uh, this otherwise uh, a patchwork-like uh, a world of uh, our perceptions of, of, of the world uh, is, um, is action, is the motor system uh, by means of uh, uh, back projection. So it's not only a matter of top-down effect, like when you see uh, a shaded uh, um, confused pattern, you don't see anything, then I ask you, oh, don't you see the Dalmatian dog? And all of a sudden, Okay, that's a clear example of a top-down uh, uh, influence on early processing. Um, this role of uh, uh, back projection has been either neglected or not sufficiently explored from a neurobiological point of view. Uh, people who study the visual system from an anatomical point of view uh, systematically uh, emphasize the fact that uh, recurrent connections are. Uh, by and large, exceed feed-forward connection. So there are a lot more fibers that travels back from V1 to the lateral geniculate body than fibers that from the thalamus uh, gets to the primary visual cortex. That that probably means something, uh, which is, I think, also very um, coherent uh, with, with the notion of perception that has been discussed during these two days. So it's a uh, a sort of uh, multimodal, uh, multimodal enterprise. And I think if, if one change this perspective, even the study of images, uh, the study of ecology, uh, can, can have a new boost, I think. We, can, we still have to, to map uncharted territory. That can perhaps uh, give some food for thought, also for, for discipline that in principle don't need the contribution of neurobiology. But I think they can profit of of this contribution. And and vice versa, of course.
0: Thank you all very, very much. And uh, that's it.